Father, we extol you and lift up your great name. We thank you that you are high and lifted up, that your name is majestically displayed in all your glorious works from creation to redemption and to the end of time all the redeemed will join together in unity and praise extolling and magnifying your greatness your power your worth your attributes your glories and we this day by the spirit's enabling are privileged to join them mixing our praises with the saints who've gone before and the ones who will join us in generations to come lifting up your name and declaring that you are worthy of praise. I pray, Lord, that you would be so featured in our affections, in our heart, in our understanding, in our intellect, that there would be nothing higher, but instead that all other idols would be broken before the superiority, the sufficiency, the sovereignty, the power, and the glory and grace of our God. I pray that distractions in our minds and sins that otherwise easily beset would be shed like so much dead weight on the altar of your holiness this day. As we look to Christ whose blood was spilled to pay for our iniquities, may we experience, Lord Jesus, the ongoing peace and joy and relief and freedom of realizing each day the power and the strength and the weight of the gospel of our Lord and Savior. Now as we open up your scriptures, open up our hearts to to receive them, we pray. Equip them, equip myself in proclamation, equip the hearers, Lord Jesus, to receive so that all of us might be further equipped, Lord, for the work of the ministry to proclaim your glories beyond this place. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity we have to worship together and to open the Scriptures and to behold our God. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Matthew 27, and let us continue in our series studying the work of Christ on Calvary and the events surrounding those uh, happenings at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The title for today's message is This Temple. The title is a reference to Christ's own body, Himself. Several times in the context of the gospel, Christ has described himself as a temple or this temple. And he says, destroy it. We'll read this in a few moments. Destroy this temple and it will be rebuilt in three days. This is indeed what happened at the crucifixion of Christ our Lord. Christ identifying with the temple was destroyed. Yet his body, the temple, was rebuilt as it were in three days in resurrection. And so these are the themes that we'll explore this day. Let's do so beginning in Matthew 27. Open up with me to verse 36 through 44. And out of reverence, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy, infallible word this day. Matthew 27, verses 36 through 44. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from that cross. Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week, our text was from Psalm 68. Let, re let me remind you the first verse of that psalm, which is a citation from Numbers 10.35. Moses, at the beginning of an ark commencement, the ark of the covenant moving from one place to another, would have a special prayer that he would pray to begin the events. He would declare, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Last week we noted that the structure of Psalm 68 was indicating its connection, indicated by this verse, its connection to the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 1 of Psalm 68 is a citation of Moses' commencement prayer, Numbers 10.35. You may remember Numbers 10.36 <coughs> included a phrase where Moses would also pray at the closure of that day's journey or that destination, the closure of the ark procession when it came to rest. Verse 17 indicates similar language in Psalm 68, and also the destination of the ark procession that was declared by David's pen and prophecy and memorial in Psalm 68. Sinai is now in the sanctuary, David declares in Psalm 68, verse 17. Verse 18 continu continues, it signals a shift at this point, and you may recall this verse. You ascended on high, David begins to prophesy, of the ark of the new covenant as we have identified this reference to Jesus to come. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Paul, you may recall, identifies this statement with the ascended Christ, Christ resurrected and received into glory. He also identifies this verse with Christ's preceding incarnation and incarnational work, the cross, his preaching of the kingdom, the cross, his burial, his resurrection. This is cited in Ephesians 4.8. All this background and this refreshing from last week's message to emphasize the parallels in redemptive history. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the ark of the new covenant. The life and teaching of Jesus recorded in the Gospels highlights these typological themes. Typological, the adjective phrase of type. Type is something that represented what was to come that went before. The ark of the covenant was a type of God's presence, dwelling with His people, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt with His people. The temple of old, within which the Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant, was a type of the temple to come. And Jesus described Himself in those terms. The place, again, in a person of God's reconciliation with His people. Where a sacrifice is provided, and where mediation, priestly mediation, prayer and intercession, a go-between, between us and the Father is our constant reality in Christ, the new covenant, ark, and temple. The life and teaching of Jesus recorded in the Gospels highlights these themes in many ways 
ranging from the subtle to the explicit. And today, let us trace one of these that builds to a stunning crescendo from Christ's teaching through the cross unto resurrection. Let us consider Jesus Christ as the temple. I have a heading for you. The recurring temple theme in the context of four events in the Gospel of Matthew and John. Let's first of all consider the recurring temple theme in the context of Christ's own prophecy. Turn with me to John chapter 2. Secondly, we'll consider the context of prosecution, the trial against Jesus, where Jesus was condemned falsely. Thirdly, we'll consider the term pillory, which is a term that means to expose to public contempt, ridicule, and scorn, which is a subject of our main text in Matthew 27. And finally, proof positive, the resurrection itself. We open in Matthew 27 with these words that are recorded when Christ hung on the cross. In verse 40, those who gather around, the passers-by, the priests, the scribes, the elders, and even the robbers who are crucified beside Him, they pillory, they bring their pillories to Him, they mock Him, that is to say, they say things like, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Where did they get this phrase? Where did they get this understanding or this knowledge that Christ would rebuild the temple in three days? Well, it comes from John chapter 2. As we turn to a parallel account in John's gospel, we see the gospel harmony and an answer to our question as we read John 2, 18 and following. Listen. So the Jews said to him, that is Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You see, Jesus had just exercised his superior authority in throwing out the money changers out of the temple, taking dominion out of the house of God as its Lord, as its, uh, the, the one in charge, and swept it clear of the corruption. So naturally, the Jews are aghast, they're astonished, and they ask him, how in the world could you be so presumptuous to do such a thing? Who do you think you are? And to demonstrate this, they ask him for a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? How will you prove that you are, that you have the credentials to, do, uh, to clean out the temple, that you have the authority to act in such a way? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The authority that I claim will be underscored by a sign. And this sign will be the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the same in three days. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. You see, they don't understand. And you will raise it up in three days? And in their minds, of course, was this impressive wonder of the world, Herod's temple, that went on for you know hundreds of feet and stood foreboding on that hill in the air and and was this great architectural marvel. And they could not imagine how Christ would destroy and rebuild it in three days. But he was talking of something even more difficult still. Verse 21. But he, Christ, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, listen, when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus did other signs. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He even raised the dead. Think of Lazarus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Verse 24, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There is the recurring temple theme, first appearing in our study today with respect to a prophecy that Jesus gives about himself in John chapter 2. Notice the gospel harmony. Many naysayers and unbelievers will tell you if you look at the different gospels, you will see contradictions and reason to doubt their content. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You see, Matthew does not record what I just read to you from John per se, but instead he presumes his audience will have a knowledge of John's account. The original context of this recurring charge uh, of the people, in other words, bringing up this charge against Jesus, he said he would destroy the temple, therefore we're going to falsely accuse him of some crime. The basis of that charge relies on context from John's account. And so Matthew, in our text today in Matthew 27, is assuming as much and recalling this moment when Jesus said, this sign will prove to you my authority. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Secondly, with respect to this prophecy, notice the relationship between signs and faith. Throughout these texts, it is clear that signs were a preoccupation, an obsession, if you will, of the people. They were always asking for a sign. And the signs that Jesus gave were never good enough. They wanted something that would impress their senses and their sensibilities. They wanted God to prove Himself and relate to them on their terms. God will never be perceived, understood, comprehended, realized, obtained, loved, appreciated, associated with, on the terms of a hell-bent sinner. God will only be appreciated, realized, understood, and reconciled to a holy, uh, uh, His holiness to a sinful man on His terms. You notice it wasn't for lack of signs that people didn't believe. There were signs all over the place. The reason they didn't believe is because Jesus did not come on their terms. Throughout these texts, it is clear people do not lack faith for lack of signs. They lack faith because they do not comprehend God's signs or His revelation. People do not lack faith because God has not revealed Himself. They lack faith because they do not understand God's revelation. They do not understand God's Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We often hear lament, oh, if, someone, if we could see resurrections, miraculous healings, signs and wonders, and if we could walk on water, surely America, who is obtuse to the supernatural, and you know, our, our uh, culture today cares nothing about a God who is transcendent, the creator of all, would bow the knee. Such is not the case, brothers and sisters. It is not for lack of reasons to believe that the heart yet remains dead in sin. It's for lack of understanding what those signs meant. For those who thought Jesus was going to destroy 
the Herod's temple and rebuild it. They used it later as evidence against him. They did not believe. But for those whose eyes were opened, for those who had eyes to see, namely the disciples, it dawned on them by the Spirit's use of the Word of God. When he was raised from the dead, speaking of Jesus, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. We have the powerful, authoritative source and fount of faith in our hands today. As the Spirit gives us eyes to see and comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in the Scriptures, it does not matter if we are not privy to a single supernatural, spectacular sign with our own two physical eyes, we behold the Lord revealed to us through these signs recorded in His infallible Word. This is the context and some of the truths that are connected to this recurring theme of temple in the Scriptures. The temple is Jesus Christ. Don't look to the physical, look to the spiritual. Don't demand a sign, ask God to reveal His revelation, His signs, His Word to your hearts. Bow yourself before the Lord and submit to Him and ask that He would reveal Himself to you. In this, in this context, and only in this context, is anyone brought to faith. Can anyone realize Christ, His work, and His revelation? So we see the theme of temple in the prophecy of Jesus, referring to His death and resurrection. Secondly, we see the theme of temple recurring again in the prosecution of Jesus at his trial. Retracing some of our steps of late, turn back with me to Matthew 26. As we recount these moments where Jesus' confession in John 2 is used as evidence against him in court. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it, in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, Listen closely, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In this context, at the prosecution of Jesus, at his false trial, the theme of temple returns. First of all, there is a false testimony that is brought forward. It's a misunderstanding what Jesus had said, and it's a manipulation of his own words as an excuse to destroy him. This is the heart of the reprobate and the sinner who is born a rebel against the Lord, whose heart and attitude and actions are in enmity with Him and seeks every excuse and everything that He can at His disposal as a manipulative tool 
to justify himself and to condemn the holy. Think of this. The whole council was here gathered. Caiaphas, the high priest, the scribes, and the elders. In, this, in these New Testament times, there was the Sanhedrin, which was a group made up of priests, scribes, and elders. Notice how complicit every one of these categories were in the condemnation and the mockery of Christ. Turning over to Matthew 27 in our primary text today, who was it that mocked him, that derided him, that again tried to use his own words against him by making light of him and blaspheming? Matthew 27, 41, so also the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, History records the Sanhedrin was probably made up of somewhere around 71 different prominent, learned, distinguished, noble, well-educated individuals who were called to lead the people in different capacities. They were called to lead the people in rightly handling court cases where the ethical challenges were demanding. They were called to lead the people and provide direction in worship to carry forth the prescribed means of worship in the old covenant manner of the high priest bringing the sacrifices. The scribes were the ones who were studied and disciplined in recording and interpreting the law. The word of God was their duty to preserve and to proclaim. And so in this sense we see the utter failure in their duty of all of those who should have recognized and should have bowed before the Lord. They unilaterally rejected him and took the opportunity to seek false testimony. These, the whole council, were the satanic consensus who agreed with the devil in condemning the Messiah. They were the supreme court, as it were, of their day. There was no one higher in Jewish society to establish a thing. And they abused their authority by condemning the Christ and seeking false testimony. Again, misunderstanding and misusing the very word of God. But notice in this section, this temple theme is central to the text again or recurs in this context of prosecution. There is a true testimony. There is a false testimony of those who brought forth their word and the high priest who was in charge of these proceedings. But then there is the true testimony of Jesus Christ himself. He breaks his silence upon the adjournment of the high priest and in his perfect law-keeping answers, you have said so in answer to the question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? But then he goes on. Jesus doesn't just affirm this identity of himself uh, with the claim of sonship and deity. He goes on. He says, verse 64, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is powerful indeed. Here Jesus, as we have stated in prior messages, not only identifies with the claim that they were bringing His way. Are you the Son of God? Are you the promised one, the Messiah? Do you claim unto yourself deity and singularity, preeminence and authority? The answer is yes. But again, he will demonstrate this by a sign. In just a short amount of time, this man who has claimed this thing will be ascended before the Lord. 
He will prove to be the Son of God and the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7 when he is caught up into glory to receive from the Ancient of Days authority over all the tribes, tongues, nations, and authorities of the earth. We are reminded of the Psalm 68 connections, are we not? Remember, first of all, there was the temple associations. There was the commencement speech and prayer proclamation that opened the psalm. There was processional language of temple worship when the ark would be carried to the sanctuary. And Sinai then would be in the fixture, in the fixed place, in the set-apart place among the people. And then there is a prophecy, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. And Psalm 68 closes, ascribing power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. He is awesome in his sanctuary, the God of Israel. The one, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. But more than this, even the kingdoms of the earth sing to God in verse 32 and verse 33, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient, ancient of heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. The mighty voice of God was echoing from Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, when he declared in Matthew 26, when he was falsely condemned, that he would soon, they would soon see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. The recurring theme of temple is here again. Not only does he own up to the claim of the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the same and the identity of himself as the Son of God, but he goes on to associate himself with the prophecies connected to the Ark of the Covenant of Old in Psalm 68. He is the one who will be the fulfillment of the Ark, the fulfillment of the temple, and will prove as much when he is ascended into glory and is rightfully seated at the place of ultimate authority. Thirdly, we see in the text, our central text today, Matthew 27, 36 through 44, the recurring theme of temple in the context of pillory. What is pillory? Again, it's to expose to public contempt, ridicule, and scorn. Pillory can be a verb or a noun. You remember the picture of the stocks in public places? Remember it was an old world form of humiliating the accused or the condemned? There would be a plate of wood or a beam of wood with hollowed areas carved out. One you would place your neck, one you would place your wrist and your other wrist, and then the other piece would come over the top and it was kind of like crude handcuffs that would put you on display in public spectacle in the square. And the neighbors and the people, the townsmen would walk by and they would jeer and spit at you and make fun of you. And it was part of the punishment that you endured for your condemnation. This is the idea of pillory. This is the idea of what was happening at the cross of Jesus Christ. Only imagine the pain and the shame multiplied by factors unimaginable to our mind. Jesus is hanging, gasping for breath, pushing against the nails in his feet to desperately fill his lungs again in full reach of all who pass by. A robber is placed on either side. And this is likely an ironic condemnation and association. He had said before, who do you think I am? A robber that you come out with sticks and clubs to arrest me? And the answer from those who put him on that cross was, yes, 
We consider you nothing better. In fact, far worse than a mere robber. We're going to crucify you with these condemned thieves and likely seditionists and the worst kind of criminals on either side just so we can make a public display of you like slapping you in the stalks. And in the public square, all who pass by on the road will wag their heads and they will say things like this. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And then again, listen to this phrasing and see if it doesn't bring to your attention, recall to your attention something that you've heard in the gospel before. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Again, who is gathered here? All the townspeople, the whole council, priests, scribes, and elders, as we've mentioned, and those who are condemned hanging on crosses next to him. And to a man, they all cry out in mockery, if you really are the Christ, then why don't you do such and such? The satanic consensus joins with the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4 to mock and condemn him. You remember these words? Matthew 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil again, he took him to a holy city, to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he repeats the phrase, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And so we see in the questioning of Satan, in the temptation in the wilderness, this same phrase repeated. And now all have joined the satanic consensus and are crying out, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. After all, you said you could rebuild the temple in three days. Can't you save yourself? Secondly, we see at this moment of persecution and pillory and mockery, we see again the people demanding signs. Listen to what they say. So also the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Remember the sign above his head? The sign which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They looked at that sign, and in mockery of him, they issued a challenge. They said, He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Do you think that statement is true? No, it is not true. If he had come down from the cross, they would not have believed. Why? Because we said of what we said before. It is not for lack of signs on the terms of the unbeliever, whereby he does not believe. It is for a lack of understanding of the signs that God has given. For those who understood that Christ was there by the sovereign plan of God, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, crucified for sinners, it, of whom it was said, it pleased the Father to crush. He was the one right there accomplishing the very acts they mocked him for. By his work on Calvary, he would save others. By his work on Calvary, he would demonstrate his greatest sign of authority and power yet in the rebuilding of his own body, the resurrection, that is to say, of the temple of himself. 
says in verse 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Again, they are demanding signs. They will get a sign. Again, we remember in the text a similar reference in Matthew 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. Notice, same categories of questioners, of inquirers. They said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes on to say that the men of Nineveh who recognized the significance of the prophet when he proclaimed to them the gospel and repented, that that generation would rise up and condemn the passers-by who did not repent, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders, if they doubled down in their hardness and their sin. Because a greater one than Jonah was here. A greater one than Solomon was here. Jesus Christ, who would demonstrate the greatest sign of all in the resurrection of his own body in just three short days. But those who are in this frame of mind in Matthew 27, will they recognize it? They will not. Again, their heart will only grow more hard. They will raise money to spread a rumor to try to say that this was a lie. They will deny that Jesus was raised and make up stories and rumors so as to distract people from the proof that is before them. Not only were they seeking signs, but the great irony in this, process, or in this uh, uh, event of persecution and mockery and pillory that we see in the text, even the mockery that the scribes, elders, and priests are bringing before the Lord it itself is a sign. Psalm 22, 8 is fulfilled in their words. Isaiah 53, 12 is also fulfilled in the fact that he is crucified with sinners. Psalm 22, that great messianic passage, we see it echoed time and again as Christ hangs on the cross. But imagine how obtuse these experts in the scriptures are as they mock him on this tree all the while, Psalm 22, no doubt a passage they had long since memorized, said, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those were the words of mockery that are fulfilled in the mouths of those who do not see that this was the destruction of the temple that would prove its power by resurrection in three short days. This leads us to our final point this morning, proof positive. The recurring temple theme in the context of the gospel, we've seen it with reference to prophecy. We've seen it with reference to the prosecution, to the pillory, to the mocking. And now we see it in reference to the proof positive evidence that Christ was who he said he was when he indeed rises from the dead. Verse 59 of Matthew 27. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, 
which he had cut out in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, well, he is still, While he was still alive after three days, I will rise. So they make further provisions to make sure that this tomb stays shut. They went and made the tomb secure, it says in verse 66, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Verse 28, the next day opens. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. He raised himself from the dead. Jesus, for three days, like Jonah in the belly of the fish, had now burst forth from the tomb in glorious resurrection power, demonstrating his authority over every enemy, his accusers, every authority on this earth, and that which would utterly separate us from the fellowship of the Father forever, sin, the death, and the grave. Before this moment happened, it was preceded by resurrection power demonstrated by His act on the cross. Verse 51, as soon as Christ has died, He echoed this loud with a loud voice. He yielded up His spirit in verse 50. And notice what happens. Three things immediately take place. Verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This was proof positive that Christ was the ark, that Christ was the temple, that it had been rebuilt, that He had power over death and the grave, that he had defeated our worst enemy. Proof positive of this were saints that were raised immediately upon his death. Three events took place. The curtain was torn in the temple, symbolizing that the ark, that the temple was now Christ, and that free access into the throne room presence of a holy God was possible because the once and for all atoning blood was now sprinkled on the mercy seat when Christ died that cruel death on Calvary's tree. Also, the forces of nature begin to shake and to proclaim, the earth quakes, the rocks split. 
And the forces of nature signal a seismic shift in history marked by the redemptive acts of God. The forces of nature, again, they signal a seismic shift in history marked by the redemptive acts of God. An earthquake happens again at the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The forces of nature bow before their sovereign, their creator, their Lord. They did so at creation itself. They did so at the great flood. They did so at Sinai. They did so at the Red Sea. And they did so at the crucifixion of Christ. And they did so at his resurrection. People were raised from the dead. The curtain was split, and uh, signaling, signaling free access to God's presence. And finally, we see these resurrected saints pulled forth from the tomb, bursting forth in new resurrected life, coming out of their grave clothes and entering into the city and appearing to many. Talk about signs. Was this not better, more powerful, more profound, more spectacular, more supernatural than Christ coming down from the cross? Yes. Not only did he come down from the cross, as it were, when he burst forth from the grave, he did so after three days of death. And preceding him were all of these who had burst forth from the tombs because of the power of what took place on Calvary. And not only that, all of us, who confess faith in Christ and all who have confessed faith in Christ will be bodily raised from the dead on the final day and will join him just like these, the precursors did in that day. And we will all worship him forever and without end because of what he has done. Notice three things that happened at the gravesite. There had been a sealing of the stone and a setting of the guard. I remember preaching in years past. A message entitled, Seal, Stone, and Sword. What was the seal? That was the mark of the imperial authority of Rome placed in wax seal upon the uh, uh, stone there. So, by Rome's authority, do not break this seal. What was the stone? Gigantic force of nature that would prevent the average person from access to the tomb. What was the guard? It was the swordsman that stood by guarding this place. Well, notice, in this act of resurrection, all three were overturned. The seal was snapped by an authority greater still. The stone was rolled back by the Lord of nature by an earthquake, and the guards trembled and became like dead men and fell back, thus indicating that the resurrected Christ has authority over any other nation, the seal of any authority on this earth, he is in charge of the forces of nature. They serve to give him glory. And no tyrant can stand in the way of his ultimate purposes. Christ is raised from the dead. His enemies are defeated. They are blown back by his resurrection power. Consequently, the tomb is empty. This recurring temple theme has now come to its apex and crescendo as Christ has been resurrected. This is a lot of information, and I'm sure it might hit us like a train moving at 100 miles an hour if we try to take in all the weight of the gospel, let alone just this one theme we've touched on today. But let me read to you how this kind of information affected a man who had no history in righteousness, who had presumably little or no understanding of the Old Testament. Listen to what happened in Matthew 26, 54. After these events began to occur, the centurion, says, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, 
they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. When they saw this earthquake and what took place, when they were bowled over by these events, when their eyes were brought to bear on the evidence of Christ's sovereignty and these acts even on Calvary, and the earth bowed to him and, this, the, uh, and the rocks split and cried out in worship to his name, when these things happened, this man was filled with awe and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. I pray in the proclamation of the Scriptures before our ears today that that's what we would take from this message. That when we consider a theme like the temple and Christ fulfilling it as much and see how that thread is woven through the gospel and how it comes to a glorious crescendo in the resurrection, I pray that we would be filled with awe and that we would say this day, this morning, truly this Jesus is the Son of God. May we be filled with awe. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the power of your gospel. We thank you so much for the revelation of your word, your authority, your glory, your redemptive work that we see through its pages. I pray, Lord, that through the proclamation of your word and through the spirits applying it to the tables of our heart, that we would be moved in awe-struck worship to confess that you are the Son of God, and then to give you the glory, to ascribe to you the glory and the majesty and the worship and the praise and the obedience you so deserve. I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin to any who struggle with it today. I pray that in this act on Calvary, we would see, Lord Jesus, our sin atoned. Believe in faith that you have taken the punishment that we deserved and that we would serve you then in acknowledging resurrection life, both of our heart and our future body, because you were raised from the dead. We thank you for these signs that you've given us. We pray that you would impress them upon our souls. We pray that it would stir within us awe and reverence and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.